Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We can't be in the same room, but a podcast can't be stopped. Cinemas are empty, the industry is fucked, but we won't log off. We're not going out, we're staying at home. And when we watch films, we watch them alone. We sit in our pants, stick on something crap, and then we hit Skype for a little chat. Little chat, little chat, little chat. We're back, Danny, how's it going? Very well, you know, day 4000 of the quarantine continues. Basically the same. Time just stretches out, it's me and us now. I grew a beard, I shaved it off, currently growing a new one. It's all happening. I gave myself a haircut. Nice. Needs must. Lockdown drives you into all sorts of crazed behaviours that you wouldn't otherwise ever contemplate. And mine is just heedlessly taking a pair of scissors to my own head. It's looking good though, I've got to say. I've seen some like, you know, there's been a few like, uh, on Twitter, people sharing like haircuts that have gone wrong. And yours has not gone wrong. I think it's somewhere between a professional barber job and like a flat out murder. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are there are elements of of just hack work here, but some of it is some of it is okay. I'm personally am comfortable going outside. I think like if I was forced to look at the back and side of my head at all times, I would be much more self conscious about it. But as far as I'm concerned, the back of my head is for other people to worry about. Yeah. It's like if you're if you're balding, but you're tall, it's basically fine. Yeah, no one's going to see that. As long as you sort of back out of rooms, no one, nobody knows. Like birds, birds will laugh at you, but... Yeah, who, who cares? Yeah, you know, who cares? They're birds. Who's looking for the approval of those guys? So have you, have you continued to uh, dip into the well of uh, cinema under lockdown conditions? Have I? I've been watching a lot of bad movies... Uh, do you want to hear about the the best film I've seen recently? Yeah, man. Tell me about the best film you've seen recently. I saw the sort of cult, I guess you call it a horror classic. I don't know. Like, um, it's more of a sort of action movie. But I saw the Witchfinder General, uh, famous for starring Vincent Price, about the real guy, the Witchfinder General, during the English Civil War. This guy took it upon himself to just go to town to just murder women who he just didn't like or was like abusing or just decided he was so full of like religious fervor that he just murdered a lot of women but in the context of the movie like you know he assaults the wrong woman because she's got a strong manly man who's her boyfriend sort of fiance so he sets out to get revenge it's kind of like a western uh i was basically it's like really well directed i think the guy directed it michael reeves died when he was 25 and directed three films so he has got this kind of cool 
what what might have become of Michael Reeves. It's got an amazing sort of opening sequence. And it's got, I think the approach of the movie is good in that it's never a question that there are witches. There aren't witches. This man is completely nuts. I think it's slightly marred by the, just how ludicrous Vincent Price's voice is. There might have been a time where he was menacing, but I just know mainly, I was introduced to him via The Simpsons. And I just can't, I struggle to think of a time where he was a sort of credible horror actor. He's just he's got such a ridiculous voice that, I don't know, there's just no, there's no menace to him. It's just entertaining. You are all of you confessed idolaters. However, these proceedings shall be carried out through due process of law. What law demands, we shall satisfy. You will each be tied in a prescribed fashion and cast into the moat. Should you then sink, we will know that your confessions are false. If, on the other hand, you are seen to swim or float, then your confessions of witchcraft are proven beyond a doubt in the sight of God, and you will be withdrawn from the water and hanged by the neck until you are dead. But yeah, it's a pretty solid movie. I liked it a lot. It's worth seeking out. It's quite gritty. And I like, I just like movies set in that period. I feel like English, we don't really like delve into our history past like the 17th century. But the sort of Civil War is quite an interesting period. And I can like, I can see it kind of translates nicely to the Western thing. It's like a lawless time, there's different bands going out. The Witchfinder General Guy is just a ridiculous figure. I do like the fact that he just decided to call himself that and just like people just went along with it. He's like, I'm the Witchfinder that's General what he, now. That's what he called himself. Yeah, yeah, that wasn't an official title. He did this all like without the approval of the crown or anything. He's just like, oh, by the way, name's Witchfinder General, in charge of finding witches. It's like, who gave you that job? Like, I did, okay? And everyone, he just had enough charisma that people fired him. It's a bit like me saying, my new nickname is Laser Dude, okay? Everyone calls me that. You call me that now. That's just who I am because I'm really cool. And when you when you kill people with lasers, they're like, "Well, he's the laser dude, so he has the authority." Yeah, absolutely. Have you uh, seen any other classic movies? Um, I got a um, free trial subscription to BFI Player yesterday. I feel like I've been watching a lot of crappy films, and I just felt it's a bit like when you like you know stuff your face with sweets, and you just like get an urge for some refreshing, healthy meal. So I was like, yeah. I want to watch like a film that's actually good <laughs> uh, to sort of shake things up a little bit. And uh, I watched a, I watched a couple of movies, both of which were quite good. That we can that we can talk about the one that I that really that I really got into though was like the second one that I just watched kind of on a whim because it was uh, just on the website as I was scrolling through it, which was um, King of New York. Have you seen that? Is that the Christopher Walken movie? It's a Christopher Walken gangster film. It came out in nineteen ninety. It's directed by Abel Ferrara. I have never seen an Abel Ferrara movie before, so this is the, uh, my first foray into his oeuvre. And it is super good. I loved it. <laughs> uh, I didn't and, like uh, it. I loved it. Yeah, I, it, it's, it, it was just, it was fucking great, especially because we, we just um, came off the back of watching Gotti, the uh, famously terrible John Travolta um, biographical gangster film. Uh, and King of New York is also a movie about a, um, a mafia kingpin uh, or like a you know crime kingpin in, in New York. The greatest fucking city in the world. And, uh, and it, was so, it, was, it was such a sort of palate cleanser to watch a film tackling similar kind of territory, but just like being, just doing it so much better. 
my feeling watching it is that it really made me feel like um, a teenager again. It was like watching like Reservoir Dogs again for the first time or something like <laughs> this. Um, it's very like uh, it's just very cool in a way that like had I watched this movie when I was about 14 or 15, my mind would have been thoroughly blown by it. Especially because the aesthetic is somewhere between... It's like a cross between Reservoir Dogs and, like, The Matrix. Or, like... It's got this kind of neo-noir thing. There's a lot of long coats. Christopher Walken's uh, drug lord is quite vampiric. He he dresses all in black a lot of the time. And he's obviously super pale. And he wears these long coats. And he sort of drifts about in and out of hotels and clubs with this probably the most satisfying and coolest walkin'y performance i've ever seen just maximal walkin'ness like it just so 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 compelling and weird and off kilter i got your message johnny you stupid son of a bitch you running games here i want to play sure fine play bring your friends nah i want to play with arnie come on let's go will you jump deals Blackjack house out. You got some balls coming here. Got the card. Got the card. Get out. Okay. From here on, nothing goes down unless I'm involved. No blackjack, no dope deals, no nothing. A nickel bag is sold in the park. I want in. You guys got fat while everybody starved on the street. It's my turn. Hmm. You think you're going to live long enough to spend that money, you fucking hump? The thing that really did it for me about the Walken's performance is that he has got such a warm and inviting smile, Christopher Walken. Like, whenever he sort of, like, breaks into a grin, it just looks... It's like this little ray of sunshine, which only adds to his air of menace because it makes him so unpredictable. And he's always like his face. He sort of gives these odd pauses in the middle of sentences and uh, his face kind of twitches about like he's thinking something really deeply. And you have no idea whether he's going to laugh or just murder somebody. <laughs> and like what sort of line reading is going to come next is completely unpredictable. And it's just great fun. Like one of the opening sequences is uh, some other crime boss getting offed um, in a uh, in a phone booth by these like uh, black guys in like trench coats all like everyone is wearing sunglasses even though it's at night cool um and they just fucking blow this guy away pump him full of bullets nice and it just immediately announces itself as like a, a clearly not entirely sort of serious film it's leaning into its coolness in a very like unsubtle way uh and promised promised to be a lot of fun and it really delivered the thing that it does well which I, I'm sure we've discussed this before, but like I really respect like any film that puts enough effort in so that every scene has a little bit of business or a little extra thing. You know, some there's a lot. It's it's very sort of uh, um, leans heavily into uh, genre cliches, and the, the the outline of the story is very familiar, and the actual plots developments are not going to surprise anybody. You know, it's classic gangster movie does, stuff. Does it end badly but, for him? Does it end badly? <laughs> It's <laughs> it ends badly for him. A lot of people die in this movie. Oh, what crime? You know, violence begets violence. I don't know if you've ever seen that happen. In what a, about in a crime? crime does, does, would you say it pays, or would you say it doesn't pay? 
Well, you know, you know that thing where um, one criminal is like, fuck you, I'm the biggest criminal here. And the other criminal just shoots him dead immediately. Yeah. And then like, but that unfortunately brings more violence upon the Ugh. person who did, you know, there's that thing. That thing happens. What about ball breaking? Um, but a ball breaking? Breaking balls? Um, like ball breaking that leads to murders? Yeah. Not so much. Not so much of that. But there's definitely the threat of that um, in a few places. But like... It just goes the extra mile. When it's going through these familiar paces and beats, every scene is doing something else. There's a kind of um, a bunch of cops who are hot on Walken's tail, and they've all got their own stuff going on. Um, there are these diversions into their lives. There's like a whole wedding scene, which I thought was only going to be there because it was going to be interrupted by like mobsters bursting in and shooting out the place or something. But it's just it's just in there, you know, so you can learn a bit more about the cops. Yeah, it's a compellingly uh, well-written movie. The other thing I have to mention about this is, like, it has an incredible cast of people who will all go on to become super famous. It's like one of those movies. And even though it's released in 1990, it has such a fully fleshed-out 90s cast. Like, this movie could have been made in 1999 with, like, the same group of people, but with a vastly increased budget, you know, because they all would have needed to be paid a lot more. Um... So it's got it's got Walken. He's in here. Um, his star would only you know go on to rise further. Although he was obviously already very famous. Um, Lawrence Fishburne is in a key minor role as one of Walken's henchmen, doing this like crazy energetic like hip hop gangster performance. He's kind of dressed like Run DMC or something, and um, uh, he's just absolutely bursting with energy in every scene that he's in, like a completely off-the-wall scene-stealing performance from Lawrence Fishburne, which is just fantastic. Uh, Steve Buscemi has a small role in it. Uh, David Caruso, who I basically only know is like the guy who takes off his sunglasses in CSI Miami. He is this um, asshole, uh, a- aggressive, angry Irish cop, and he's so good in this movie. I love it. <laughs> he is so, so good in it. Um... And uh, that guy, you know, Paul, the bartender from Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Um, uh, that guy, Paul Calderon, he is in. He's in it as well. He's got like a pretty significant um, uh, supporting role in it, and he's really good in it. Oh, and Wesley Snipes. Wesley Snipes is in it as well. Wesley Snipes. Um, Wesley Snipes uh, is 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 also in a small role in the movie, and it's yeah, it's just uh, I just had such a blast with it. Um, I don't know if I'm still I'm a bit like over enthused because I just watched it yesterday so I'm still kind of like riding riding high on it a bit but I think it probably caught me at the right time yeah and um, I want to go back in time and watch this movie on DVD with you in like 2005 (laughs) I feel like that would be just the ultimate the ultimate way to experiencing it but um but yeah that not not being able to do that um the next best thing is uh getting a free trial to BFI player and uh and checking it out. I'll watch it. Yeah, I'm, I'm very keen to see a sort of... I don't think I've ever seen Christopher Walken in a lead role, ever. And I feel like because he's got such... Like you were saying, such a sort of slightly idiosyncratic way of talking, he's almost... Every time he does, like, a comedy role, I think it's almost like a mistake because he becomes, like, less credible as a dramatic actor. And, like, he's a bit like the internet. He's one of... I think he's below, like, Jeff Goldblum or something in terms of... He's a bit weird and, like, a thousand memes will populate from him. But he's yeah, obviously yeah. it's yeah it's kind of interesting his career because he's like the guy from the Deer Hunter and uh, all these dramatic roles and then like I don't know it feels like he dials up the comedy a bit in the nineties and then I don't know he's great in Catch Me If You Can I think that's like his best performance like which is a very uncomedic one uh, yeah yeah he's great in that 
But I mean, the th- like when I was imagining in my head the kind of um, sinister, menacing walk-in performance, it was a bit more like straight down the line and not quite as like off kilter as he actually is. Yeah. Like I was, I think what I was expecting is that he would be like the gangster he, that he is in True Romance. Right, right. The Sicilian. Where the Sicilian. A slight guy, bit yeah. of blackface. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, when 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 he is like um, uh, really just dialing up the um, uh, the menacing quality to him, whereas in the in King of New York he's very menacing, but he is also this kind of like urbane man about town. Uh, he, right at the beginning of the movie, he gets out of prison. Uh, where he's been for some unspecified time, but it's a very long time. And he just immediately slips back into his life as a, as a crime lord and is like uh, just instantly going to um, high society dinners and balls and speaking to politicians <laughs> just like immediately. <laughs> he's like he's like a millionaire immediately and like is like talking to the mayor and saying, you know, that he that he wants to like save this hospital that the city is like run like closing because of budget cuts or something. Um, and uh and there's this fun mix of like um he like he's living out of the plaza hotel so he's he seems to have limitless wealth um and there's this mix of these like ball scenes that he's uh, swanning about in and then these like incredibly dingy kind of scuzzy uh new york underworld that he also inhabits with like e- equally seeming at home there yeah just like a very compelling guy without seeming like he's trying too hard you know it's just a very well pitched performance like not a parody of himself just just great you know just like really good cool i'll add it to my ever increased watch list ever increasing watch list right after i finish too hot to handle it's not that long either it's less than two hours and movies with a grandiose title like king of new york i was i was expecting some sort of epic but it's uh it it zips along cool should we should we talk a little bit about uh richard curtis yeah that piece of shit richard curtis there's not a lot of like news you know film news going on right now but whatever news there is it's just like we're just like starved vultures just like if there's they're throwing us a lump of meat and then the entire film toward the community is just descends on it, just it descends on it it's disgusting it's just it's, it's like yeah it's like silly season basically yeah it's like the you know, pe- yeah it's like the apocalypse is happening but just on twitter there's enough actual food to go around but there's not enough content to go around and as such <laughs> <laughs> you know we've just become feral uh, we've lost our humanity um, yeah, the the Richard Curtis story. I, I loved it. Um, so why don't you uh, take take us take us through what happened? So uh, Uprox had this interview with uh, Jack Bath, who was the guy who wrote Yesterday, or wrote what was then called a cover version. And he came up with the idea of a guy called Jack, who's a struggling musician, who one day wakes up and discovers that he's the only man who can remember the Beatles. And then, unlike the Richard Curtis movie... He sort of starts booking better gigs and becomes a sort of cult hit, but doesn't have a huge success, which already makes it better than yesterday the film. Because I feel that's the complaint. Literally every single reviewer was like, "This this wouldn't happen." And uh, Richard Curtis's line, or like what he said, was basically he was told like the log line, the like one sentence pitch, and then he went off and wrote a completely different script. And there's also there's some dodgy dealings where like they basically kind of shafted the original writer where he wouldn't receive the credit he would have done under the Writers Guild in America, which is a bit more hot on this sort of stuff. So he got a story credit, but then during the sort of press tour, Richard Curtis minimalized his involvement to like literally I never read the scripts, I just read the logline. But 
this has since been proven to be absolutely incorrect and there's m numerous similarities. The characters have the same names, for example. There's the same plot beats. There's the same uh, weird thing with John Lennon. You go see John Lennon as an old uh, fisherman. And even, it, the, even the Harry Potter gag. And the, and the closing gag of the movie is from the original script. So basically it just comes across as like Richard Curtis obviously did read the original scripts, didn't made one significant change, which is to like destroy the logic of the of the of the concepts, and then completely like shafted this guy, like Jack Buff, who's like this uh he's quite an old writer, he's like sixty two and has the first screenplay script he screenplay scripts, as I call them, screenplay scripts, uh, which he just sold. But he's had like a sort of semi-successful career and wrote an episode for The Simpsons. And film Twitter was outraged. That How could he do it? The man who wrote Notting Hill and Love Actually. He's so full of warmth and cuddles and The Best of Us and David Beckham's Right Foot and Harry Potter and Shakespeare. And he's and he's acted like such a such a bad man. Like he's like the president from Love Actually instead of the Prime Minister from Love Actually. <laughs> Um, yeah, so yeah. it's an outrage. Yeah, it's a, there's a lot of fun aspects to the story. I think the fact that it's definitely like Richard Curtis's incredibly small-time kind of obnoxious uh, behavior, uh, completely unnecessary, no real reason why he couldn't have shared a writing credit with this guy. Or like, Would it, would it have been a, an issue if it had been a co-writing credit or if he'd said that he adapted another script rather than that he... I mean, he really went out of his way to minimize this guy's involvement and claims that, you know... He'd only heard a one-line pitch and then had written it from scratch from that and had deliberately not read the script to avoid contaminating the purity of his ideas or something. So it just seems like incredibly petty bullying behavior from, from Richard Kerr. And it's, it's just so funny how much it mirrors the sort of like the plot of the movie. Like so ma ironic. man steals idea and goes rich with it. And yeah. Well, there's, there's the interesting, I mean, the, the um, comparison drawn by the writer himself is that, like, the writer, this guy who's, you know, struggled and never quite made it big and, you know, has had a, had, a, had a few things going on, but feels that he has never kind of broken through. He wrote a story about a guy who can't, you know, get his big break. And Richard Curtis, someone for whom everything he touches turns to gold, you know, um, uh, wrote a story about a guy who just immediately becomes super famous and successful. <laughs> And yeah, and I do like as well how the key intervention by Curtis is to just make a much like a clearly worse film that's a, just about nothing rather than like the take on the story where this dude, this sort of struggling dude basically gets the biggest gimme you could possibly have, like the most famous songs ever. He gets to say that he wrote them and he still can't hit it. He still can't get it, get the big time. Yeah, yeah. That's funny to me. You know, that is a funny idea. A, a comedy about the sort of down on his luck guy who can't catch a break and is just generally a bit of a mediocre schlub seems like a classic kind of mold to go in and then it becomes more about like you're following a sort of lovable loser type rather than it being about the Beatles per se whereas the way that it's done in the movie is such a the the main character has this bizarre sort of non-arc basically as you pointed out when you reviewed it he seems to hate his success, and he hated not being successful. <laughs> so what's his deal? What does he want? And like the key sort of fulcrum turning point of the movie is uh, him having to choose between the love of his life and going on James Corden's television program. And then he chooses Corden, and then, and then for no reason, and then he just is mad at himself about it. And it's like, why would you do that? 
Um, we do, mate. And so in the in the absence of any kind of real story about that guy, it's just like, aren't the Beatles really great? Um, and we're just hearing their songs performed uh, in this kind of limp way. It also throws into relief a bit something which seemed really strange about the film, which is like its idea that you can completely abstract music from its context and, and its performances as well. So that you don't need the singer, you don't need the instrumentation, you don't need the arrangement, uh, you don't need the the time period. Uh, all you need is literally the the sheet of music that can be just transported into any other context, performed in any way, and will immediately be hailed as a work of complete genius, which makes no sense. And then in, in the original version of the of the script, where um, he does his own versions and people find him to be mediocre, it's like that is exact. That is what it would be like. Yeah, know? yeah. That that has a much better understanding of what of how music works. Shocking, shocking yeah. behavior. Funny. From your um, observation of uh, the, how the discussion has gone down on film Twitter, like, was it this kind of the scales have fallen from our eyes? You know, I love this dude, but, you know, now I'm disappointed in him. Was that the kind of attitude? Or I was mean, it a bit like. Yeah, like a few of those sort of Curtis defenders were like, oh, this is really disappointing. And then some people were like, like Simon Blackwell tweets, like, I wish I could write with half the wit and grace as Richard Curtis. It's like, that's not the point here. Like, if anything, the fact that you're saying he's a good writer just is more damning because. Uh, it obviously has come up short. So yeah, I'm not sure if it really people have really altered their opinion about him. I did. I just you know we disliked him before it was cool. I felt just vindicated. I was like he was making shitty movies with weird politics, and I've been watching a lot of Vicar Dibley recently where he's like constantly like bashing the Tories. It's like you're such a fucking melt, mate. You're like such a fucking Blair loving dude. You don't really want things to change. You just want them to be like a bit nicer. Whatever that means. You don't want any sort of seismic actual yeah. shifts in the way society... As, um, as, as Ultron said. Yeah. As Ultron yeah. said. As Ultron said, you want to save the world, but you don't want it to change. You know, that's why that's the best one. <laughs> There's a lot going Ultron, on in that movie. It's a, it's Ultron. A great message. Yeah. Um, well, I, th- I mean, I remember our impression of yesterday was that it was guys running on complete fumes, no ideas, putting in no effort whatsoever, just you know, uh, laughing all the way to the bank as they just accumulate money from an audience that is just there and doesn't know why. Um, and this story, one million percent reinforces that <laughs> that impression in a way that is quite satisfying. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite, yeah, I think like a lot of people who didn't like yesterday just felt quite smug because it's always a temptation when like you're reviewing something to sort of imagine what happened. And it's like, it's exactly how you thought it would have gone down. Like someone else had <laughs> the idea and then like they just ruined it and they fucked them over in the process. Those villains. I can't believe the man who directed the 2012 opening ceremony and the guy who wrote Four Weddings and a Funeral has done this. The, tre- the two national treasures working I know. together. Yeah, I did like the bit in the article where it's like Richard Cutter's literally one below a knight at the moment. That's his national treasure status because he's got one of... I forget how the orders go. Is it OBE? Is he MBE? One of the BEs. He's got a, he's got a BE. Yeah. Yeah, I'm surprised he's not a full knight. Sir Boyle, Sir Curtis. Oh, I think Danny Boyle turned down a knighthood. Did he? Which is, well, good for him. That's kind of cool. Whoopie you know. I mean, but is, is he a BE, though? No, I don't know, actually. I think I think he just doesn't believe in any sort of honour system, which is obviously the correct opinion. Well, fair play to him. Fair play to him. Um, but it doesn't make his films less shit. <laughs> Man, unfortunately, it doesn't make your films less shit, so... Make a film, make a film about that. Make a film about the uh, make some sort of uh, anti-imperialist screed, you know, and then mm. uh, 
and then we'll then we'll check back in on you. I'm gonna make a film about a about a guy who is anyone who can remember the scripts for the girl in the cafe and like. He wakes up and he's like googling like Bill Nye, Kelly McDonald, made for TV movie, directed by David Yates, and nothing's coming up. And then like, I just send it to the Beeb, and they just I become the most famous writer in the world because I think that's what that would, would would happen probably. Richard Curtis's big break, the girl in the cafe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fun story. Feel bad for that guy, but I enjoyed. I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. People who you don't like for aesthetic reasons, I want I want them to hear about them being scoundrels. That's great. I just need to. I need more some dirt on some other people I like. That would, that would, you know, more more stories about beloved people who's make me. I want Sam Mendes to be revealed to be a piece of shit or something. That would like make me feel better. Don't like his movies. Mendes would be a good one. Tom Hooper as well would be yeah. a nice one. See, get some dirt on him. Taking down a peg or two. That'd be good. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Uh, so what else, what else have you been watching? Well, we continue to watch absolutely appalling movies. Shall we talk about Gotti, given that you've... Sure, yeah, let's talk about Gotti. So, I think the most interesting thing about Gotti is the Wikipedia page. Uh, so, it came out two years ago, after many delays. It's got, like, a re- it's got like 54 producers attached to it. It's got, like, a record number of, like, delays and different people coming on board and stuff. But there's just so many producers. Like, so many people are, truly, like... Truly comical number of producer credits. And they've all, like, chipped in, like, $1 each or something. I don't know how it worked exactly. So it came out, premiered at Cannes, got, like, absolutely slated. And then was released in cinemas. And it had, like, had a 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. But the audience score for the first week was surprisingly high. It was, like, 80%. And the trailers for Gotti was like, what is, you know, what are the public loving the critics don't get or something? Why are people talking about Gotti? Then it was revealed that, like, the people writing the reviews were, like, bots or something. The company had, like, just were trying to, uh, you know, fudge the numbers to, like, make people go see it. Anyway, we, you know, didn't fall for that marketing campaign. It's just on Netflix now. And, uh, yeah, as you alluded to, it's just, like, a sort of comical collection of every single gangster cliché uh, performed with not a trace of irony. Uh, people, wise guys, ball breaking, voiceover. It's the real, like, the director who's the actor, Kevin Reynolds. Is, you know, I watched Goodfellas a couple of times. I know how to do this. Some needle drops. Uh, there's a bit of murder. He's like, you know, he murders a guy, but he's like nice to the mailman or something. He's that guy. He's a wise guy. People love him. John Travolta I found very entertaining. I think he's, you know... It's been a while since he's put in a, a good performance, and this probably isn't a good performance, but I just find him... I don't know, if it wasn't him, I don't know if we'd, we'd watch it. There's something about... He's particularly weird as a performer, I think. Maybe it's just the baggage of the fact that he can't say, like, Adina Menzel's name. Adina Menzel. He's a Scientologist. His face is kind of frozen now. It's all gone a bit wrong. Uh, but I sort of enjoyed his sort of wise guy shtick. Uh, but yeah, it is, it is pretty terrible. I mean, that, I'm not sure if I'd give it 0%, but it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a high mark. The production values on it are basically Saturday Night Live sketch. Yeah. You know, he like wears a series of different wigs and just does a kind of uh, 
wise guy. Hey, forget about it. Hey, hey there's only one guy. I'm gonna stick a bus up your ass sideways. Let me tell you something. New York is the greatest city in the world. My city. I was a kid in these streets, and I made it to the top. I made my bones doing a piece of work for Don Carlo Gambino. Like that, I became a made man. Dad, I'm thinking maybe take a year off. Why you wanna hang out with me? Do you know what you're doing to this family? I will build something that nobody can destroy. Salute. It does have this weird, like, um, Scorsese, but as if someone just fed a bit of his some of his tropes into a machine. It's like, yeah, he likes to make epics that take place over decades where, you know, some, sometimes you jump back and forward in the chronology. So we're just going to mash up all the scenes at random. So <laughs> you have absolutely no fucking idea what's going on. Like nothing leads on to something else. And it was just like jump forward a few years and there's a new thing happening, but it's completely confusing. Just uh, very, very amateurish. I think like the thing that it really reminded me of was um, United Passions, the FIFA funded film about itself, starring Tim Roth as Set Blatter. The movie tells the story of FIFA, but it also includes this, it's like, it's sort of like a hagiography of the organization, but like, especially um, of Set Blatter at the end, who's portrayed as this uh you know guy who's like dedicated to football who's like fighting against the man and there are scenes of him in court but it's not really clear why you know and he's probably innocent <laughs> and the whole thing is clearly just a publicity stunt by fifa masquerading as a real drama film about football and this is also a film which like is like officially approved by the Gotti family basically yeah and as as it grows on it only becomes more and more overt how pro Gotti it is to like a comical degree and it's a bit like you know I know some people like to criticize Scorsese because he overly glamorizes uh, uh mobsters whatever but um but this feels like a sort of almost comical like reductio ad absurdum of that where it's like they literally have cutaways to real people talking about what a fucking cool guy Gotti is like ne- like newsreel footage of like random Gotti supporters just saying that he's an absolute legend and then like the end titles for like what the what happened next stories are like the fucking feds tried to get his son but uh but uh he's such a cool guy that he got off you know the feds can't get him and uh, it's just all about how Gotti Jr. is fucking awesome and the government is a bunch of, you know, fucking schmoes. Yeah, it is like, particularly at the final, like, card, which is like, you know, most of the witnesses they had against him were like these jailbirds who, like, basically saying the case was bullshit. They were, they were fucking rats. But it's a bit like... rats are murderers. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit like at the end, the movie becomes like some sort of, like, great mistrial of justice where, like, it's already explicitly made clear he's murdered several people, but, like... <laughs> They like yeah, but that, that was that was his dad, and those he only murdered people who deserved it. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> sure, he murdered some guys, but they got him on some dodgy. Uh, the actual legality of how they, you know, took him down was 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 fudged, so he should have been free. Um, yeah, it's a it's a not a good film. I you know, they are, they asked like you know what are the people seeing in it? I think nothing. Those people were bots by the created by the company just to juice the stats. And yeah. no amount of stat juicing can make this film better. I'm sorry. The only thing that could have made the film better would be a director's commentary by Nick Love. <laughs> this movie got cunted, mate. I've yeah. never seen zero percent before. <laughs> Ugh, you know what I missed? You know what I missed the beans too. I took twenty million. I <laughs> <laughs> said it's about sitting on the sand. I was like, what, what paper did you read? You dozy cunt. 
think any film could be improved with Nick Love's commentary. He should just do commentaries where he defends panned films and says that they're awesome. All right, so listen, the bottom line is this film got a fucking hostile reception when it came out. A lot of people, a lot of press didn't like it. You're never going to make a film that fucking pleases everybody. You know no. what? You talk to sort of 18 year olds about The Godfather, and I go, fucking, I had bollocks. Takes about three hours yeah. to get going. Yeah. People want to go to the cinemas these days. They just don't want to think. No. They just do not want to think. I feel like it's a shame that the sort of, you know, the film industry has shifted to the point where I don't think there's a, a space for someone like Nick Love making films that get wide releases but are like comical and bad like nowadays if a Nick Love movie came out we'd never make it at a cinema I don't think it'd just be on demand somewhere yeah it's a shame the DVD mark there'll be no DVD commentary because no one buys a DVD I want to see the Sweeney too yeah but I do I had a you know clickbaity ending where like they were back you know on the streets keeping the yeah. geezers off the off the stuff and keeping, get, the, get keeping your... the slags away keeping the slags away yeah <laughs> a Sweeney a day keeps the slags away. <laughs> that would be the tagline. <laughs> what other what other film did you watch on the BFI player? Uh, the other film, which was the one that I wanted to see, that kind of initially prompted me to get my subscription, was this documentary called London, directed by Patrick Keeler. Oh yeah, I've seen. Yeah, film? I've seen it. When he's like, you seen it? Yeah, it's just a sort of long monologue with shots of. Uh, yes, it's a kind of um, semi-fictional or fictionalized documentary it's got a very unusual structure which i kind of gather is patrick keeler's thing this is basically the way that he he makes his movies which is to have a an unseen narrator who um tells a story about like um him hanging out with his friend robinson in london in 1992 and they go to visit different parts of the city and they kind of look around and they they mull on london's history and its current political situation and that kind of thing and he's just talking about his spending time with, you know, Robinson and what they're what they're chatting about. And this is all set to different, effectively plate shots, um, almost all of which are s- still images. Not, I mean, they're you know, they're, it's filmed, so things are moving within them. Yeah, yeah. The camera is still uh, of different parts of the city and uh, at different times. They capture some events, um, and uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's a particularly interesting film to watch now because. This was so it was made in 1994, and the year in which the film is set, and probably I guess the year in which it was filmed, since it's a sort of documentary, is the year of that election and covers the beginning when they were expecting the conservatives to to lose that election, followed by the um, despair uh, that followed the victory of uh, John Major. At 4 a.m., we stood on the edge of the crowd in Smith Square. It seemed there was no longer anything a conservative government could do to cause it to be voted out of office. We were living in a one-party state. It is difficult to recall the shock with which we realised our alienation from the events that were taking place in front of us. Robinson's first reaction was one of spleen. There were, he said, no mitigating circumstances. The press, the voting system, the impropriety of Tory party funding, none of these could explain away the fact that the middle class in England had continued to vote Conservative because in their miserable hearts they still believed that it was in their interest to do so. And so it just felt, you know, the resonance with right now was uh, was extremely strong, you know, seeing these the, the sort of mulling of the of, um, of the of the narrator and his friend about like how awful the future is unfolding before them after this after this conservative victory in 1992 and, and them talking about it and its impact on the city of London and like 
what more conservative government is going to do, like further privatization, further rent increases, all this kinds of thing. And and one of the things that really hits home as well watching this is that a lot of the so it has this mix of all different parts of London, including the like um, there's shots a lot of shots of like bankers and you know high finance and how much that's dominating London at the time. Um, and then shots of parts of London which um, are a bit less touched by that process, um, like Brixton Market and like the Elf and a Castle shopping centre. And you watch that now, and it's like, um, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they did not survive the intervening the intervening period. So, like, you know, on the one hand, you're watching it like um, knowing that you know, the a Labour government is coming, and like, you know, and they do um, you know increase public spending a lot and. Uh, in the film they're worried about like hospital closures and that sort of thing and we know that like labor spend a lot of money on the nhs and that kind of thing um but at the same time their fears about the way which london was going in general have just fully come to pass and are just still continuing to happen yeah the elephant and carlton shopping center being particularly poignant since that that fight is happening right now and has now mostly been lost but um uh there's a shot of it in the in the film of it sort of in this vibrant bright pink like strikingly bright pink looking like you know clean and uh sort of exciting and now it's this like totally run down half closed um like holdout of like local businesses and stuff about to be demolished uh and like the Bri- brixton market which is obviously heavily gentrified and full of brunch spots now you know it's still like a cool and nice place but it's you know it's is not the like local community hub that um uh, that it was then um so yeah just a very a very interesting portrait of the city um and uh and a sort of interesting like um as a meditation on uh on its like context and history what did you what did you make of this when did you see this movie i saw it uni so probably like it's probably almost like 10 years ago yeah i remember enjoying it i wonder like it just strike me as something you would never make now just because the novelty of I feel like just social media is like, I don't want to hear two guys talk about politics. That's my, that's my every waking minute now. Like, you know, <laughs> whereas then in like the nineties, it was quite a kind of fresh prospect. And it's so quite innovative, even though the concept is so simple. I would say it's, it's quite kind of resembles the video essay. Yeah. It's not, it's not that different to a sort of modern YouTube video essay in a way. Just a guy rambling on, giving you his thoughts and his takes set to uh, appropriate visual accompaniment yeah i remember sort of in- i wasn't like blown away by it but i just i basically just thought it worked like you know this is the potential to be very boring but i was like kind of caught up in that conversation i like the sort of mythic nature of like rob i don't know that was the beginning of a book and then i met robinson and all this happened it definitely it definitely is it has a kind of like radio four quality the the narrator is this rather uh, you know, he's a BBC voice man. It sounds like a kind of thought for the day thing almost, or like the beginning of a play for today, you know, and he's just like, yeah, it is like the opening of a novel very much the way that the um, the narration unfolds. But yeah, I enjoyed it. It's very sort of calming. Um, and and I, I also just liked revisiting the early 90s in that way, since it certainly feels historical, but it also there's something satisfying about the fact that I felt like I could place my childhood here. It was, yeah, it was yeah. like looking at old childhood photographs. They go to Richmond, Teddington Lock. Yeah, and, yeah, I remember, um, yeah. Richmond Hill. And seeing that seeing that stuff um, in, like, 1992 was, like, just uh, quite cool and interesting. Yeah, it's weird. The 90s is a long time ago. 
I'm still like I still count back from like 2000. It's like the 70s. That was like 30 years ago. It's like it's 50 years ago. Right, the yeah, 90s yeah, yeah. was 30 years ago. It's very it's very hard to get out of that habit. Yeah. Um, speaking of uh, incredible filmmakers with bold experimental approaches, I don't know if you've heard the news about um, the Snyder Cut finally getting a release. I was personally in tears. I was crying. I went out to the balcony. I started clapping. Everyone's like, it's not Thursday. I'm like, I know it's not. An even more worthy cause that needs more applause has come to pass. Finally, Warner Brothers are releasing the Snyder Cut, which if you're not familiar with, uh, all the Snyder fans, fans of Zack Snyder, the way they were annoyed. They think there's a sort of miraculous, much better version of Justice League out there. Because he left the project due to a family tragedy and Joss Whedon was brought on board to film some reshoots and uh, maybe just add some humour or humanity to the project. But that, that destroyed, you know, Snyder. He, he made that masterpiece Man of Steel and then that other masterpiece Batman v Superman and it was going to be a hat trick. But unfortunately, he couldn't. And now, I think purely just because of the economics of the uh, pandemic... They're spending a bunch of money on finishing VFX shots. They're going to release basically a director's cut on HBO Max. So I'm not sure if it's a case of the the you know the trolls winning out, or if it's just you know they crunched the numbers and they're like there's money to be made here. But you know a bunch of very happy um, Snyder fans. As a result. First of all, I think we can both pat ourselves on the back. I know both of us as <laughs> to Warner Brothers demanding this yeah. ha- this happen. So it's a big win for us. Um, but uh, but the thing I don't fully get is that my, at least my understanding, because I think I read the articles, you know, like how, it, how the project changed or what he initially wanted to do um, compared to how it eventually turned out. Like, it sounded to me like a more drastically different film than you could simply, like, touch up, you know, change a few of the effects or insert a deleted scene to, like, recreate. I thought it was going to be, like, a two-parter, like like the Avengers Infinity yeah. War films, um, with an entirely different villain, but, you know, like a, hu- like a different villain being introduced later on, and, like, just a dramatically different story altogether, which is basically sort of like emergency retooled by uh, joss whedon and also like my understanding was that he left during shooting right like it wasn't like they'd finished the film and then joss whedon came on and then reshot it because they decided they wanted to take a different direction wasn't it like the snyder cut had not been filmed right well yeah i mean my understanding was that like joss whedon oversaw reshoots right after like a sort of assembly edit Right, but you're oh, okay. you're right in that like yeah the big seismic the first of the two parter I think yeah exactly so the big change happened right early in production when he was still in charge so th- the best you can hope for is just a more Snyder version of the movie that already exists which I don't know what that means just more more less color grittier more sort of uh, Anne Rand less quips objectivism in it yeah somebody uh, made this point on Twitter or like a few people did but like. You know, there's a history of like, oh, there's the studio cut and there's the much better director's cut, whatever. But like, has there ever been like a a really seismic difference? You know what I mean? Like, the difference between like the original Blade Runner cut and the director's cut and the final cut. You know, there's like, there's some differences, like they take out the voiceover, whatever. But it is basically the same movie. Like, is you're not gonna like hate one and love the other. It's only like a small little aesthetic things. Or the same as like the George Lucas re-edits or whatever. It's still, you know, a lot of people like, I think I, only, I saw the 9, 97 
special edition of New Hope before I saw the theatrical version. And it is, you know, I loved it when I saw it and I wasn't like, oh, what? What is that CGI rock doing there or whatever? It is basically the same film. I prefer the theatrical one, obviously, but it's not, you know, yeah, yeah. what's the percent difference? It would be fascinating if it is just like a completely different movie. <laughs> they just spent untold amount of money. I mean, if they just like spend a bit of money to like rub out uh, Henry Cavill's moustache even better, you know, yeah, then that that wouldn't have been the worst, the worst thing to do. If 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 like the film production becomes increasingly focused on streaming, or like streaming becomes the main platform by which people watch watch movies, they could release updates like to video games. You know, like there's like the patch version of the film where they've just tidied it up and corrected it, and you know, it's still the same. Sure. Well, yeah. There's two like actually they did that. They did that with cats, didn't they? Maybe 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 this yeah. is the future. Yeah. It's like Kanye West. Like I'm gonna fix wolves. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I'm gonna fix cats. <laughs> but first of all, this kind of stuff. It, I, I think what's interesting about it is like because the home physical media is kind of dead. There was like a period where there's loads of like directors cuts. I remember like you know when DVDs were big, were like ah oh, the Kingdom of Heaven directors cut and they re-release films and all kinds of versions just because there's like a fast buck to be made. It's kind of interesting because it's on HBO Max rather than it being part of some sort of re-release blu-ray special because no one would buy it yeah yeah and also like the thing i find like i'm not looking forward to is like all the snyder bros that like if this movie is like better or more coherent than justice league it's like well they've had like five years to retool it like joss whedon was like parachuted in at the last minute and like all this vfs artists were probably working around the clock for like severely underpaid had to fucking finish this thing and export it with like shots they got yesterday yeah yeah, it's like so if the vfx look better it's like you know well they should do but it's no, uh, it's, you know, it's not the original crew's fault. It feels like they were working in a maelstrom, you know. Definitely. Maybe, I would love to see the behind the scenes of that movie being made. I think that would be, that's what the cut I want to see. Release the behind the scenes footage of like, Release the making of. Cavill his Tash, like these like, overworked crew members just like shaking their heads as they're trying to sort of cobble together this film for a, like a three month turnaround or whatever. I felt that I was watching that even when I was watching the film itself, you know, like the, the yeah. stress behind the camera was so powerfully coming through that, that, that seemed like the main story to me a bit. It was a bit like watching Josh Trank's fantastic four where the extent to which it was fucked with, it was so obvious. Like it, it, it was almost like a kind of freeze frame record scratch. And then like, they just put a different film on at the end, which is like, just stitched together with like silly putty <laughs> it's just like put this we gotta let's just end this film somehow um everyone's hair is wrong someone's wearing a wig it's not very convincing yeah, like, everything is against the green screen now uh uh it just seems the the seams are so are so obvious that um it's very hard to just watch the film itself and i guess from that perspective then the director's cut is almost like a sequel you know it's like what's the next stage in the madness the stressed out people trying to make this thing work. I would guess it's going to be a bit like the um, uh, the repairs to the car in Father Ted, you know, where they just like keep trying to iron out the dinks until the thing is completely destroyed. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm curious. I, I, I felt no urge to ever see that film again after I watched it the first time. Um, but if, if, this, if people review this and they're like, you've got to see the madness that is Snyder, the Snyder Cut of Justice League, then maybe I'll check it out. Can't say I'd be good. You, would you watch it? Oh, I'd watch it. Just, uh, <laughs> I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd buy it. I'd watch it like over and over again. 
and, I, and I'd buy copies for my friends and make them watch it. But, you know, do I want to see it? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe if, if it's newsworthy enough, if enough people are talking about it, you know, that's how we decide what to discuss, right? If it just gains enough... It's the, we're living in the time of the clickbait blockbuster. This movie's garbage. You got to see it. Absolutely. Like I'm still. I I really want to see. Um, what's it? Fonzo, the Tom Hardy Capone movie. Apparently, it's like awful. Apparently, he's doing like a completely mad performance. Like every line delivery is like completely unintelligible. I was like, sign me Can't up. Wait for that. Cannot wait. Cannot wait for that. It's directed by a guy who's clearly mad. They've still, for some reason his career should have ended five years ago, but they've given him a ton more money. I love it. Uh, we should watch it. It's on demand. Let's review it next oh, episode. Shit. So that's available. We can we can dive into yeah. um, Hardy's Capone whenever we want. I I believe so. If it's not if not already available, it definitely imminently. Yeah, let's de- let's definitely watch that. Hundred percent. I think he like shits himself in it as well. Or something. He's like I love it. He's got dementia. Like even when he's sane, he's like no one understands what he's saying. But then he loses his mind as well, and all his bodily functions. What a guy! Incredible. Um, yeah, let's definitely do that. Folks, thank you for listening to this episode. Hope you're staying well under the, and in this apocalyptic situation. And we'll be back. We'll be back again. See you soon. Sayonara. Let's do it. Hello, everyone. Congratulations to the class of 2020. All you people all over the world, wherever you are, I know it's a tough one. I'm an old dude. I've been around for years. I live with the optimist. But all you guys, all you youngsters, who feel thwarted and put down and hopeless, leave me one thing. I've read someone I can't remember with it in the Old Testament, or I think it was a shaman, maybe Carlos Castaneda, but the shaman said was a drought. Cattle were dying, people were dying in the desert. The shaman said, build the ditches, dig the ditches, the rain. They said, there is no rain. Dig the ditches and the rain will come. Now you non-believers may say, oh, that's nonsense. Well, believe what you want. That's the rational mind. I don't think the rational mind is working too well. It's the irrational mind. It's a conscious. All my life, as a little boy, I dreamed of where I am now. I may have had a vision I don't know. Didn't have much hope. But everything happened for me. And now I believe that we can condense time. We can pull it to ourselves. It's not about the future. Oh, I'm going to do something next year. It doesn't exist. Tomorrow doesn't exist. Next hour does not exist. It's all potential. But what we can do is drag the into the present, now, into the solar plexus, our soul, build the ditches, whatever you want to do, believe it, believe it, believe it, even if you don't believe, play the game, your belief, act as if you believe, that is power, that is sheer power, and it will happen, believe you me, no fool like me, it's worked in my life, it will work in yours, so never give up, believe, 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 I don't care if you're atheist or agnostic or anything. Believe, believe, believe. Because I have Small details are big surfaces. 
tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.